0: you're about to hear is something of an experiment. In the year and a half since we started this podcast, we specialise in long-form standalone interviews. And so for our first episode of 2023, I wanted to try something a bit different. I'll be taking a look back at 2022 by returning to some of the key events, ideas, and personalities that we featured on this podcast over the past year. Every voice you hear on this podcast, apart from my own and Vladimir Putin's, was a guest or a host on a previous episode. My hope is that when we put them together, They'll become something new. Whether this experiment's successful or not is really up to you. If you liked it, please let us know. And actually, please let us know if you didn't as well. Either way, we'll be back next week with a new interview in the usual format. I'm Joshua Martin from New Lines magazine The Lead. <laughs> My on February 21, 2022, Russian President Vladimir Putin declared war on Ukraine.
1: I thought that Putin was a clever guy, horrible but clever who understood how difficult conventional war
0: is. That's Professor Mary Kaldor, Director of the Conflict Research Programme at the London School of Economics.
1: I was surprised because I thought it was such a foolhardy thing to do, which indeed it has turned out to be. Even if the Russians succeed in taking Kiev, they're not going to control Ukraine. You can't control a country where everyone is against you.
0: She spoke to the lead just two weeks after Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. Putin had made a dangerous gamble, she explained. And she did not like his odds.
1: You you see this with the Molotov cocktails. A woman drives past a tank and throws a Molotov cocktail. That's going to happen to Russians all the time in Ukraine.
0: It did. But while Putin may have underestimated the difficulty of fighting a so-called conventional war, Professor Kaldor knew exactly what it was he was getting himself into. She's perhaps best known for her pioneering work on what she calls new wars.
1: In retrospect, I wonder if I shouldn't have used another term. It was very controversial, but that was good because it drew attention to the ideas. What I wanted to show was that contemporary warfare operates under a very different logic.
0: Unlike the wars of the past, she said, which were mainly fought between the armed forces of different nation states, war since the 90s has been dominated by warlords, terrorist groups, ethnic militias and gangs.
1: And their interest actually is violence itself rather than winning or losing. They partly do it for money and partly they do it for politics. They try to gain political control in the name of very extremist ideologists, They could be ethnic nationalism, they could be religious fundamentalism.
0: So groups like Islamic State or the Serb militias behind the genocide in Yugoslavia.
1: And what we're seeing is these what you might call forever wars, Syria, Congo, Afghanistan, where this is really a way of life and goes on and on and on and on. They tend to persistence. They never end.
0: And here's the weird thing. Russia is actually pretty good at fighting new wars. On the eve of the invasion, Russia was funding proxies in Syria, Libya, the Central African Republic and Georgia, to name just a few. In fact, they were even fighting a war like that in eastern Ukraine, arming and training separatist militias in an effort to draw their neighbour into an endless quagmire of fighting that would keep it weak and fractured, at very little cost to Russia itself.
1: I think if you study the evolution of new wars, you realize it's happened because the use of conventional force has become more and more difficult. Uh, The Second World War was unbelievably bloody. You know, millions died, 70 million or something like that. And um, it makes me think Putin's a little bit mad.
0: It certainly seems like that now. Or maybe it was pride. He simply couldn't imagine that the Ukrainians could actually resist. Perhaps he just played the odds and lost. Whether it was madness, arrogance, or simple miscalculation, what mattered was that Putin and Russia were committed. There was no turning back. Russia was now embroiled in a quagmire of its own. Anand Gopal is an award-winning war reporter with The New Yorker. Since he'd reported extensively on the wars in Afghanistan and in Syria, we wanted his take on what this all meant. He's the episode's host, Faisal al-Yafai. Let's start with
2: the big story, which is, of course, Ukraine. Yeah, I think there's a couple of lessons we can draw from this. We should probably add,
0: this uh, is about uh, a month after the invasion began.
3: Where it seems they may have miscalculated is in the ease with which it would have been to take Ukraine.
0: It seems like they did not
3: expect the level of resistance that they faced. They did not expect that the Ukrainian state would remain cohesive and have what, looks like a large degree of popular support, at least in terms of uh, people who are opposing the Russian occupation. So that's first mm-hmm. and foremost. Second, the Russians have still not been able to um, obtain air supremacy. And that's a big, that's a big uh, difference from Syria, where from the very beginning, the Russians had air
0: supremacy. What was becoming clear, Anand explained, was that for Russia, the war was not going well.
3: Partly because of the resolve of the Ukrainians and, and the fighting force, but, but also because of the forms of corruption and inefficiency that have plagued the Russian military. I think it speaks to, as I said earlier, the corruption, the the sort of ramped privatization um, and the difficulty of the Russian state to exert its will in the way it wants to.
0: NATO, on the other hand, the mutual defense pact between the United States and a number of European nations, had begun the year in pretty bad shape. Trump years had soured pan-Atlantic relations, and America's humiliating exit from Afghanistan the year before had left many wondering how much longer its supremacy could actually last. The invasion changed all of that. It gave NATO member states a cause, and that's when American money and weaponry began pouring into Ukraine. Slowly, but surely, the Ukrainians began to turn the tide, but Putin could not, and would not, back down.
3: We're starting to see now they're taking the gloves off. You, you know, you mentioned Kharkiv and other places where you're seeing real atrocities
0: happen. The full extent of the atrocities would only later become clear. Civilians left murdered on the street in the Kiev suburb of Butcher. Children starving in basements in Mykolaiv. Torture chambers in Kharkiv. The Kremlin, of course, denied it all.
2: They have responded with this Russian misinformation, blaming crisis actors for the reports of the bombs and so on. Do you think that going forward as the Ukraine conflict plays out over weeks and perhaps months. Do you think that will make a difference in how the, the conflict is perceived?
3: I think it may, and, and you know we should be clear, that uh, approach, uh, spreading conspiracies, sowing doubt, that was actually pioneered in Syria. The Assad regime deployed chemical weapons. And the, the MO there was not necessarily to disprove the idea that the regime had used chemical weapons, but rather it was just to... to make people question it and say, well, we don't know the whole story. We don't know both sides yeah. of the story. And, you know, yeah. it's the fog of war. It's complicated. Uh, that was pioneered in Syria. And it's, as we see, it's being used in, in Ukraine. And I think if the Russians continue to uh, have much slower progress than they hope, then I think that's going to be one of, their, one of the strategies that they rely on.
0: If the Russians continue to have much slower progress than they hope. That, I think, shows just how easy it is to forget how catastrophic the invasion actually ended up being for Russia. Even when their weaknesses were beginning to show, I think a lot of people still assumed that, you know, it was still Russia. This was still the second most powerful military in the planet. Faisal talked about the war lasting weeks or months. I know I certainly assumed at the time that the only way out for Ukraine would be to fight Russia to a standstill and then give them, say, Crimea in exchange for peace. I never imagined that we'd enter 2023, talking about whether Ukraine could actually take it back by force.
4: We are seeing what feels like a cataclysmic, change, a, a, an epic moment in time when, when it comes to Russia. W- would you agree with this, Julia?
0: That's our global news editor, Amy Ferris-Rotman, speaking to Russian-American journalist Julia Yoffy last October.
4: It certainly feels that way. You know, it feels like Russia's losing the war. And now that the war uh, is very clearly going Ukraine's way, Putin started basically throwing cannon fodder at it. This army that he told the world was gonna roll Ukraine in three days can't even take the Donbass. You know, it, they, they're, they've they're they lost 50% of their tanks in less than a year. They're, they seem to be completely incompetent. He tries to call up a draft and at, as many people as he tried to call up leave the country in less than a week, and it's suddenly, you suddenly realize the emperor has no clothes, and it's the worst thing, I think, that can happen to a strongman autocrat. He, he looks weak.
0: The invasion was, I think it's fair to say, the defining story of 2022. It represented a major geopolitical shift, as NATO was proved to be much stronger than a lot of people had thought, and Russia much weaker. It reinvigorated supporters of liberal democracy worldwide, and it had a massive ripple effect beyond its immediate neighbourhood. Russia and Ukraine are both major exporters of wheat, which meant that the conflict disrupted already fragile food supply chains the world over. And yet I can't help but feel a bit uncomfortable labelling it that way. Because while Ukraine dominated headlines and, quite rightly, received massive international support, conflicts elsewhere went underreported, or even ignored.
2: I wonder if, on a personal level, as somebody who's been to a lot of conflicts around the world, war zones. Do you feel sad that these conflicts have not had the same recognition in the West as the Ukraine conflict has in such a short period of time? It's a hard question, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it's hard because, of course, I'm happy that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad that it's getting the attention it is. So this is not an argument to say we shouldn't be paying this kind of attention to Ukraine, but rather this shows, you know, what, People can do when they take these conflicts seriously. And as an American, I'll say that we have, in the United States, have been at war for two decades. Uh, but that conflict is completely, this Afghanistan conflict and then Iraq, for the most part, was, was not part of our everyday experience. You know, uh, most people, if you, I think if you just ask people on the street last year, let's say, Um, is the United States at war in Afghanistan. I'm not sure most people would even say they knew that the U.S. was was at war there, you know? So it's like the realities of conflict have completely been um, sort of removed. And that's by design, I think. That's that's one of the reasons why we don't have a draft. That's one of the reasons why it's a volunteer army and the U.S. is careful in getting uh, reporters to embed with them. I think the U.S. does not want... Uh, and not just the U.S., other countries don't want their citizenry to really be thinking about the conflicts that they're engaged in. And so Ukraine is a bit different in that case, and it's been able to penetrate. So it is sad. It is sad, but hopefully Ukraine, um, not that we want future conflicts, but if there are, that Ukraine would be a a model for how we uh, engage with it and analyze it in the future.
1: Okay.
5: So now let's move on. The Russia-Ukraine conflict broke out uh, February the 24th. And this gripped the world's attention, you know, with the global community. They're all rallying around it.
0: That's Kwangula Wewe, the Africa editor here at New Lines, talking to Chris Maraling, the executive director of Good Governance Africa.
5: Now, my question to you is, are, are African leaders themselves giving this conflict more attention than what's happening in their own backyard?
6: One of the key things that we have noted since the outbreak of... Uh, the country.
0: When she says Africa's backyard, she means Ethiopia. Since 2020, war between the central government and the region of Tigray in the country's north has left more than half a million people dead.
5: Supply chain disruptions in Africa, inflation versus thousands of lives lost in Ethiopia, millions displaced. Is that a fair thing to say?
6: It's unfair because this is an unfair dichotomy. You see, Kwango. just
0: because you are chewing gum doesn't mean you must sit down.
6: You can walk and chew
7: gum at the same time.
0: In February, we spoke to Binyam, a man who'd grown up in a town called Dego in Tigray. Binyam was living in Canada when he discovered that his hometown had been the site of a massacre committed by soldiers in the Federal Army. They documented their killings on video. I was uh, at my home after
8: a class. And I saw it on live streaming uh, uh, media, which is based in the United States, Tigray Media House, and I was shocked. I never imagined in my life to see such kind of uh, killings with uh, with uh, with uh, with a pleasure. On the other side, they were just pointing them. They were just killing them at a, at a, a point blank range. You know. The people, the victims, people were not allowed to to see the the whereabouts of their loved ones. They yeah. were not allowed to bury them. One was a university graduate. His name is Melas. I know uh, his father was a priest, and he used to visit our home. He was like uh, his father was like a father to us, and uh, uh, that guy was very very humble and nice guy. He was. Uh, doing good at school. He recently graduated. And, uh, the other two was also, the other one was, uh, uh, killed with his brother, uh, with, um, um he was a public health, uh, graduate. He was very senior and his brother was, uh, a, a, a very scholar in religion. Their father was a priest, but he uh his young brother was very uh he he had a big milestone in the religion and the third one was uh Halofom. he was the youngest i guess from them he might be fourteen or fifteen and <clears throat> he was also very close with me when i was in mahabradegua i am born and raised in mahabradegua yeah and uh He was uh, working uh, at a private, as far as I know, know, and he was in school. (coughs) But most of them I know. And uh, I learned that like uh, four more of them are also very, uh, very close to me. So they become seven now. It was a crime against humanity for uh, killing people who have no any contact with whatsoever military group or anything.
0: When we spoke to Binyam at the beginning of last year, a ceasefire seemed to offer a very tentative hope of peace. In that episode, we asked, can Ethiopia end what one government general called its very dirty war? That,
6: that's it's hard to say. It's, uh, I'd be speculating right now. But obviously the first step would be for mediators to get involved, and they are to some extent.
0: That's Zachariah Zalalem, a freelance journalist who investigated the massacre at Mahberidego for New Lines. He was the one who introduced us to Binyam.
6: Um, but nothing yet that has really borne the sort of fruit which could spell an end to the conflict, which sadly continues to rage on. And we had recently we had an Ethiopian uh, military commander go out on state television and promise viewers that Ethiopian forces would go back into Tigray and retake the capital city. With that sort of saber rattling, you don't see the sort of compromising approach uh, that both sides need. To be able to to reach an agreement, um, to reach the sort of settlement that would address the very, very dire humanitarian situation on the ground, which is arguably arguably the worst
0: in the world today. Vice News' Julia Steers wasn't much more optimistic.
9: That was one of the most dispiriting parts of our reporting on both sides, to be honest.
0: Steers was one of the few journalists the government allowed to report from the front line of the war.
9: In Amhara, we were there shortly after the federal government's call for mass civilian mobilization. So everybody pick up whatever weapon you have and join the fight. You know, being on the ground in Amhara at that time, you really got the feeling that everybody was behind the war effort. And the idea that a peace deal could be signed and Amhara civilians and Tigrayan civilians will sort of easily go back to living as neighbors and living as fellow Ethiopians is, is at this point quite hard to imagine.
2: It's very worrying. I mean, you hear mixed messages, I think, coming out of the Abbey government. On the one hand, you know, there's this push for a negotiated settlement. The UN wants peace talks and so on. And Abiy's government said you know, it's going to end the state of emergency. But on the other hand, you have people like the deputy army chief saying people of Ethiopia shouldn't think it's over. The enemy is still here. They have to be eliminated. There's no negotiations. These mixed messages mean realistically that regardless of what international pressure there is, this conflict is not going anywhere.
9: Yeah, exactly. And it's hard to tell, you know, whether or not that's coming from Abi himself or if frankly, he's just sort of lost control of all the forces at play. I mean, you have Amhara militias, you have the mass mobilization of civilians, you have the involvement of regional militias in Afar and Amhara. You have Eritrean troops on the ground.
0: It sounds a lot like Mary Kaldor's archetypical new war, doesn't it? All the ingredients are there. Ethnic militias, and maybe worst of all, a tendency toward persistence. Six months later, when Kwangu caught up with Chris Maraling, that tendency did not appear to have gone away. The central question, can the war be ended, hadn't really changed much.
5: Both sides of the warring faction have now agreed to look at the African Union to mediate this conflict. The AU, Chris, has already been involved in the peace process so far, but it hasn't been that effective. So does the AU actually have the capacity to do this now that they've been, you know, they've already been on board anyway?
0: And yet on November 3rd, precisely two years after the war began, the government and the TPLF did manage to reach a peace agreement with the help of the African Union. It's far from perfect. As Julia Steers predicted, Abiy's control over the Amhara ethnic militias and his Eritrean allies was never all that strong. Unbounded by the government's peace agreement, they have continued to attack Tigrayan civilians, and 2023 will require some long and arduous negotiations before a more permanent peace can be achieved. But it's still no small thing for Ethiopia to enter 2023 with the Tigray War officially behind it. And still, Ethiopia is not at peace. The war in Tigray, itself a shamefully underreported conflict, ironically still managed to overshadow. A second conflict in the Oromia region. Zacharias Zalalem, who you heard from earlier, recently worked on another investigation for New Lines, along with Bile Jalan, exposing the government's use of drones against Oromo civilians. There's a quote from that piece which has been on my mind ever since I read it, and it feels like the appropriate place to end this section. Quote, As swathes of Oromia approach a fourth anniversary of war, Drones may tragically prove a far more cost-effective method of ensuring slaughter continues unabated. For communities heading into the new year, cut off from a world increasingly accustomed to human suffering far away from Western shores, the outlook appears grim. 2022, marked 100 years, the fall of the Ottoman Empire.
7: You know, the, the, the fall of the Ottoman Empire has continued to resonate right down to a century later. That's Yudian
0: Rogan, professor of modern Middle Eastern history at the University of Oxford. I mean, I think that there are still things that we can
7: point down that, yeah. that say that this development was, is, has influenced the world as we know it now.
10: The Ottomans were practical, just as they were ideological, and their ideology changed over the centuries. And that's Mark David Baer professor of international history at the London School of Economics. The Ottoman idea was this idea of tolerance that if you proclaim your loyalty to the sultan and if you serve him well like the contract is that then you could rise. But tolerance again is a power relation and it assumes that one group has power and grants the right to life to another group. And so this this is um, this isn't modern
0: democracy or equality But that's precisely what makes the Ottomans worth talking about. Their world was a very different world from the one we all live in today. I want to take a moment to pause here to talk a bit about why we spent so much time this year talking about the Ottomans. In part, it's about what Professor Rogan just said. The continuing relevance of their legacy in the modern world. You can't really understand the present without understanding the past. And for most of the Middle East, North Africa and the Balkans, The Ottomans ruled for hundreds of years worth of that past. But it's also because looking at the past gives us the chance to imagine how the present could be different and allows us to see that the world we live in today was not predestined or inevitable, but the result of historical circumstance and sometimes just sheer chance. You don't really understand the present unless you understand how easily it could have gone the
7: other way. Had they stayed neutral, they could have survived. I think that that's absolutely true. The, the, the pros to Ottoman neutrality would have been, in no time at all, the sultanate would have inherited the oil resources, certainly in Mesopotamia, and quite possibly in parts of the Persian Gulf. So we might have seen the emergence of an oil sultanate instead of the oil shakedoms of the 20th century. And of course, the Middle East would not have been characterized by the Arab-Israeli conflict because the British would not have been in a position to make the Balfour declaration had the Ottomans been a neutral party. How it would have played out is anyone's guess, but it's a fun counterfactual to ponder.
0: Of course, that's not what happened. The Ottomans did not remain neutral in World War I, and the peace terms that were imposed upon them were punishing enough to provoke the revolution which toppled them. Their memory remains, but the Ottomans are gone.
10: The Ottomans have left us a great legacy in terms of culture, in terms of history, in terms of architecture, in terms of food, in terms of you know a remembered past but i wouldn't i wouldn't um, i wouldn't be nostalgic about it part of the problem he says is that few remember the ottomans as they really were people only want to remember aspects of the past that that help them in their nationalist claims today so perhaps a country in a place like Bulgaria, people wanna only think about the Ottomans as oppressors. In Turkey, perhaps they wanna think of the Ottomans only in terms of the 16th century when they were grand and powerful, and they don't wanna think about the Armenian genocide. They don't wanna think about the crimes that the the dynasty committed. So what happens is, you have, you have different soap operas, you have different television programs that will tell one side of the story, but tells us about how people want to think about the past and how they think of their current leader and their role in the world. It doesn't really tell us much about the Ottomans themselves.
0: Of course, that's not unique to the former empire by any means. That's just what happens to history especially history that's politically useful.
11: There are constant battles over how we remember history, whether we remember history. And that obviously, uh, given that it's been taken up by politicians uh, in particular, um, has a bearing on our everyday life, on on how we relate to each other, how we relate to uh, society, and how we relate uh, to other cultures and other countries.
0: Priyamvada Gopal, professor of post-colonial studies at the University of Cambridge, knows better than most how present history can be. Her field has put her right at the heart of some of the UK's most hard-fought battles over the past.
11: I I tend to use the word afterlife um, rather than the past because I think that things that have happened in history have a life in the
4: present. Afterlife is wonderful because it covers so much like the
0: echoes of Mm -hmm.
4: words, rhetoric, actions.
0: Lydia Wilson, our culture editor, speaking there.
11: Yes, it does cover a lot. And it reminds us that, you know, unlike the word the past, um, it's not finite. It's ongoing. And I think Mm. that 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 link is really important.
0: And it was in September that history once again came crashing back into the present.
2: So it's been almost an hour now since the the death of the Queen was announced. Tell me, I mean, what can you see?
4: I was in a pub just five minutes away. So I just walked down here and there were just so many people. And, you know, I've been here probably half an hour or so coming and going. And in that time, it's just an order of magnitude. More people, there are people arriving all the time. There are people being dropped with flowers people walking from every single direction. There are so many people here and a lot of people grieving. It it, it looks like a mass outpouring of grief. That's all I can say.
2: And I think you being in London gives you a sense that this is not merely an occasion for one country. It's an occasion in some ways for the whole of the world. Already you hear the tributes coming in from all around the world for this woman who had been reigning for so many decades, was so recognisable.
4: Well, I mean, yeah, it's of course, Britain isn't a a big country, but she's involved politically in so many more countries, head of state, queen, of, of, of tens of countries around the world. But still, there is that involvement of the queen in their country's histories of millions and millions of citizens around the world. And to be honest, I see that reflected in the crowds today.
11: Yeah, look, she was a ringside player, uh, you know, in the 20th century, in the 20th century as we know it. I mean, here is somebody who, uh, you know, witnessed at close hand major, major historical events that, you know, everybody knows about. And so in that sense, she is or was a living uh, embodiment of the 20th century Well into the 21st century. And in that sense, clearly a fascinating and an and intriguing life. The, the trouble is that it's just become an opportunity for uh, mythification, again, on, on more than one side. Um, and I think that it would be a shame if we didn't take the opportunity in Britain and beyond uh, to actually say, well, what does the passing of the 20th century in Queen Elizabeth mean? Uh, and And how should we think about that moment?
0: There's a lot of that going around right now, isn't there? Whether you blame the internet or the pandemic, globalization, Russian disinformation campaigns, or woke college professors, it will be hard to deny that old certainties have been looking increasingly uncertain. Old truths, once taken for granted, no longer hold so true.
12: Right now, the national narrative in the United States is being challenged on both the right and the left. That the sort of the textbook story of the U.S., that's under a lot of pressure in a lot of ways right now.
0: Truth is Sophia Rosenfeld's specialty. She's a historian at the University of Pennsylvania, and she wrote a whole book about it. There are no easy answers, she says.
12: The question is, is there a right version, or is it all politics? Is any version I tell of the national story politics? And I would say that both sides are, in a sense, saying, you told us the wrong story and, and we were supposed to believe it. And in fact, maybe we even did.
0: Losing that certainty, though, can be a pretty destabilizing experience.
4: I think that's also what explains maybe why you also experience this kind of rise of conservative thinking in these moments of crisis. That's
0: political theorist Leah Ipi. She lived through the fall of communism in Albania as a teenager. Her whole world changed practically overnight. And everything she 'd been taught turned out to be a lie. so if the past few years have left you feeling a bit disoriented, she gets it.
4: This is why, in some ways, nostalgia for the past becomes then politically salient in the present, not because it 's nostalgia, not because it 's the past, but because that 's the moment of comfort, even if there was crisis, even if there were difficulties, you know it, and you can control it because you know it, you know how it played, you know where you were, who you were in that position, what you did, and so on, and I think that 's the appeal of all this theories that go back in some ways to nostalgia, to the past, to kind of, yeah, evoking some myth of stability. This is the authoritarian
12: bargain.
0: Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a historian specialising in fascism. Her recent work has focused on the figure she calls the strongman. By now, he'll almost certainly be familiar to you. He's Vladimir Putin, Narendra Modi, Donald Trump. He's macho, brash and domineering. If he's not an autocrat already, he'd like to be.
12: And every one of them um, has some kind of mythical past or, or real past when the nation was bigger and grander. It's not making the nation great, it's making the nation great again.
0: And that's his ticket to autocracy, a promise to turn the clock back to a simpler time.
12: you play on uh, kind of resentment that people have. And in the, in the American-European context, it's resentment with um, non-white, non-white people, or non-Christian people who are getting ahead at your expense. It's very potent both at the popular grassroots level and at a more transactional uh, elite level.
0: It's a winning formula, but it's not perfect. 2022 saw Trump's hopes of a 2024 presidential run badly bruised after a disappointing midterm result. And in Brazil, Bolsonaro lost his bid for re-election. Professor Rosenfeld is actually surprisingly optimistic.
12: I don't think this is a moment where you'd say, you know, wow, really a great resolution to the first two decades of the 21st century. But that doesn't make me think that we are opening our arms necessarily for authoritarianism or something much worse than what we have now.
0: So no, 2023 will not be the year the strongman is toppled for good. But it does suggest that the inexorable tide of authoritarianism may not be so inexorable after all.
12: The one thing we can be sure of is change. And that does not mean history always trends in the right direction at all.
0: It just means that a trend in the wrong direction still has a chance to be corrected. And that as much as they might like to, no authoritarian leader can ever really turn back the clock. This has been The Lead, a podcast from New Lines magazine. A sincere thank you to all our guests, and I do mean all of them, not just the ones who reappeared on today's episode. This week's episode was hosted and produced by me, Joshua Martin. Like I say, it was a bit of an experiment, so I'm keen to hear what you think. You can find me on Twitter at JJA underscore Martin, and the magazine on Twitter at New Lines Mag. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app and visit our website, newlionsmag.com. Thank you all for joining us and Happy New Year.